At the age of five, you might say that Richard Marx began a career that so far has lasted a lifetime. At this very young age, he was already singing lyrics for the jingles his father would compose and produce for top advertising clients in Chicago. That was the beginning of a Grammy award-winning career that has allowed Marx to write and produce for some of the greatest artists in the music business, beginning with the one star that noticed him and brought him into his world of hit creation, Lionel Richie. As a mentor, Richie helped pave a road of success for Marx, bringing him in as a background singer for several of his hit albums. Marx has enjoyed a career that many would envy, but it all began with his musical hero, his father, who taught him as a young boy how a hard work ethic will always pay off. Richard is proof of that as he continues to embody the musical spirit of his father. Inside Music Cast welcomes Richard Marks. Hey, Richard, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure, guys. How are you? Good. And uh, before we uh, get started, I wanted to also mention on the phone with us or on Skype with us today is uh, Inside Music Cast correspondent Scott Sheriff. Mm-hmm. Hey, Richard, how's it going? Good, buddy. How are you? Good, thank you. And uh, interesting, just a, a little side note here to get started. Uh, Scott, you've played with Richard before in the past, right? I think you've toured with him. Yeah, I did uh, some sub dates in his band. It was just a real pleasure to play with him and those guys, and uh, just had a great time out there. Yeah, cool. Hey, Richard, you know you were in your early twenties when you uh, when your first solo record was released, and you know this was you know more than just a debut album for you, as you literally burst onto the scene you know twenty five years ago, and I think it was like June of eighty seven with four top five hits from that self titled debut album. And but you know as the public grew to know the name Richard Marks, chances are. You know, they'd, they'd heard your voice many times before. And, and, you know, first of all, I want to go back and take us back to your early years and tell us about, you know, your father and the influence he had on you and your interest in music. Well, I definitely, you know, so many people that I know um, of any age, it's very rare that you find somebody that knew from the time they were a little kid exactly what they wanted to do and exactly who they wanted to be. And so I sort of had that... Um, from the time I, I mean, as long as I can remember being alive, yeah. I knew I wanted to be a musician and be in the music business. And and a big part of that is because I was born into a musical family. I, I not only grew up 
um, with my parents exposing me to a tremendous amount of music, all different kinds of music, but I was exposed to the music that they made themselves. So um, my dad was a, a jazz pianist originally in Chicago mm-hmm. and built quite a reputation for himself and played it um, in the late 50s. You know, the, the place to go to hear amazing jazz was Mr. Kelly's. Okay. And it's no longer there, obviously, but it was the the place everybody went to. And he was the house pianist at Mr. Kelly's, and he played around all the other you know major clubs, jazz clubs. Um, and then in the early '60s, he completely, sort of by accident, sort of stumbled into. Um, he realized he could he could write these really catchy melodies, and so he got a job with a jingle company. Um, and this is you know basically the beginning of when jingles even began, you know. Um, and within a year or two, he was writing the lion's share of all the work, so he started his own company. Interesting. And um, for the rest of the 60s, 70s, and well into the 80s, he was he was pretty much the number one jingle writer-producer in the country. And, you know, because so much of that industry was based in Chicago. And yeah, right. Especially in the 70s, it was the hub. Um, so I, I grew up watching my dad um, he built a studio. Um, you know, here's a little aside. A lot of you guys would probably appreciate this. The, the engineer that he started working out, working with in the, in the beginning, ended up designing his own studio with, for my dad. Um, and his name was Bruce Swedeen. <laughs> and he ended up being Quincy Jones' engineer and doing all the Michael Jackson stuff. <laughs> and, um, but Bruce was my dad's jingle engineer and um, the guy that designed my dad's studio in the '60s. So, wow. Um, so I I grew up watching my dad write. I mean, he would he would do two, three, four sessions a day, yeah. all different products, and um, sometimes they'd be you know industrial films. So he would score seventeen, mm-hmm. eighteen, mm-hmm. twenty piece, twenty minutes of music for you know full orchestra, and wow. um, and he would write the next day's work after dinner in his music room. So the two things happened. One is that I was exposed to a tremendous amount of music. The other thing was, and my mom sang, I, I should mention, my mom sang on all these jingles, and my mom's a great really? singer, and, and so she was a session singer. But I watched both my parents, but particularly my dad, do something for a living where they couldn't wait to go to work. They couldn't, he couldn't <laughs> wait to get to the studio. He couldn't wait for the next day. As opposed to, you know, 99% of the world who clocks in and clocks out and they hate every second. Yeah, right. So... It was sort of like there was no question that that's what I wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And so I started singing on um, jingles when I was a little kid for, for whatever kid-oriented stuff you know was appropriate. And it's because I was singing around the house to Monkey's records and stuff. You know? So <laughs> my dad knew I, could, I had decent intonation. He knew I could sing in tune even as a little kid. And yeah. so he said, you know, nepotism be damned. I'm going to hire my kid <laughs> to do a bunch of these jingles. And so I was... Sort of raised in the studio, you know. I, I got to miss school quite a bit, which was awesome. <laughs> um, and I, I learned how to, you know, how to be in the studio, and it was like second home to me. Yeah. Um, and then I started writing songs when I was a teenager, mainly to try and impress girls that wouldn't have anything to do with me, like most, like most guys, you know, do start in the music business. And then when I was about. 17. I was just going into my senior year of high school and um, I had recorded, because my dad had a studio, I was able to to do pretty decent demos of my first four or five songs. And 
the cassette of these songs, you know, I would send them to my friends or just, you know, pass them around, whatever. And it literally is a case of a, a friend of mine knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew Lionel Richie. Right. And Lionel Richie heard my cassette of songs, and my phone number was written on the back, and he called me. It's just He picked up the phone and called me. It was just bizarre. I was just starting my senior year of high school, and um, I thought I was being punked, you know. <laughs> but he had, we, we had this really great conversation, and he uh, he just was so encouraging. And he said, you know, I heard your stuff, and I really love your voice, and I think, you know, this is your first few songs, man. You know, you've got a really decent shot at having a good career as a songwriter, and who knows what could happen. And really uh-huh. encouraged me to think about moving to L.A. Mm-hmm. So sort of at, by the time I hung up on that phone call, um, my my plan at the time of, applying to Northwestern University to study music was out the window. And, and as soon as I graduated from high school, I moved to LA and I, and he hired me as a background singer. So I was right. thrown right into it. And, um, I can't say enough about what a catalyst Lionel Richie was in my, you know, in my professional life because it all happened the way it happened and when it happened mm-hmm. because he was cool enough to listen to somebody's tape they didn't even know, and then call the guy. I mean, call some kid in Chicago. Well, who does that? Well, I th- you know, I-, I read that story also, and I knew about Lionel and how you know you answered my question. I was curious about how the tape fell into his hands uh, uh, serendipitously, I guess. And you mentioned that you you were sitting there in the studio with him, or I guess you were, or you were. He had known about you, and then he was having some trouble with uh, some of his backing vocals. Called you in, and the rest is history. You you sang on his first album, and then I think he called you back for um, his second album, which was uh, what was that called? Can't slow down, right? Yeah, yeah. And did you sing? Yeah, so I sang on all night long, and I sang on you are. I sang on running with the night. Yeah. And then on the third, his third solo album, um, there was a song. By this point, I was. Um, I don't think I had a record deal, but I was getting close to a record deal. So I was doing. A, I was more of a songwriter, and I was. Mm-hmm. I'd had a couple of um, successful songs as a writer, and I so I thought, oh, I bet he thinks I'm not gonna. You know, he, he, I'm not gonna call him and say, "You need me to sing on your record." <laughs> um, but I, I knew he was making his third album, and he hadn't called me at any point, and I was kind of bummed out. And then one day he called me and said, "Hey, I, I got this one song, and Eric Clapton played all the guitars on it, and." It'd be really cool if you came in and sang the harmony by yourself to me. And I was just so. There's a song called "Tonight Will Be All Right," which is on the um, "Dancing on the Ceiling" album. So I sang on that one too. He's he was. I learned so much from him. And and um, and the thing that I I try to point out to people is that it wasn't just that he hired me as a as a background singer on his records. More importantly, he said to me, um, "Whether you're singing on a." song or not, you're welcome to be here anytime you want to be here. So I had an open invitation to be at the studio. When He, he said, if I'm in the studio, you're welcome to be in the studio, which mm-hmm. is, I don't know if he could have a better gift than that. Yeah, no kidding. Learning so. <laughs> starting out. So I, I took advantage of it, man. I was there every day. I, I would just sit and watch and go get coffee for him if he wanted or, you know, run errands, whatever. I wasn't getting paid. I just was getting paid in, you know, this wealth of experience and watching him make hit records. It was Learning by amazing. osmosis, yeah. You know, I wanted to just touch on one more thing about Chicago and, and the advertising business. And, you know, the jingle business, you know, in Chicago is, is really how a lot of great musicians hone their skills, you know, on their path to other great, you know, musical achievements. And we just had a, a recent guest on 
Howard Levy. You probably know Howard, right? Sure. And you know, he, he played said on that, a bunch of my dad's commercials. Yeah, I, that's what I was going to ask. I figured he probably did. If you know, yeah. but, and uh, you know, Howard said that was just. You know, you know how fabulous a musician he is, and, and he just... Uh, he's, he's a freak. <laughs> yeah, I remember Kenny, talented. Kenny Loggins once introduced him as the man with two tongues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, ladies, you're going to like this, but... <laughs> but if, he, uh, if he failed there, he'd make a great career in porn. But, you, know, <laughs> <that's right. laughs> you know, the the early 80s time period, when, you know, you were paving your way through... The L.A. scene was, was a pretty incredible time to be out there. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you became connected to so many... Amazing musicians just you know during those early sessions with with Lionel Richie you know many of many of those guys which probably became lifelong connections and I was thinking about some of the guys who played on that Lionel Richie album like you know Paulina da Costa and, and Joe Walsh and Nathan East and Greg Fillingaines for example I mean you probably I'm sure you probably connected with them and have played with those guys throughout your career or, or others I'm sure that you know that were yeah they've all played I mean Joe Walsh played the solo on Don't Me Nothing on my first hit you know so I didn't meet him during the when he worked with Lionel, but, um, you know, the session players, the, the studio musicians were to me, um, equal to the singer songwriter, big stars that I looked up to. So I was just as big a fan of Greg filling games as I was Billy Joel. Right. Um, it's just that all my friends would go Greg who, you know, <laughs> um, cause I was a liner notes junkie. And, um, I remember early on, like right before I actually moved to LA, the other guy, the other experience I had that was pretty cool was um, because of, I, I mentioned Bruce Houdin. Bruce Houdin invited me to come by a, a session once when I was in L.A. This is before I moved there and worked, worked with Lionel, but it was around the same time. And so I went by and they were, um, Quincy was making a, um, a Patty Austin album, which okay. is still holds up as a great album. Uh-huh. And I got to come by a tracking date and John Robinson was playing drums and Steve Lukather was playing guitar and Lewis Johnson of the Johnson Brothers was playing, or Brothers Johnson was playing bass, mm-hmm. and Greg Fillingames was playing keyboards. And so I was, it was like, I was, my heart was pounding. I was just so <laughs> freaked out that I was in the room <laughs> watching this go down. Um, so, you know, cut to Greg Fillingames has been a lifelong friend of mine, not since then, because we didn't really know each other until well into after I worked with him on the Lionel stuff. And yeah. Steve Lukather, same thing. I didn't really know him until years later, but I met those guys that night. They've all played on my records, except Lewis Johnson. I never get to work with him. But, um, I mean, Lukather and I hung out just last Saturday night in Nashville. Yeah, that's um, right. So, I mean, he and I are pals, and we've worked and written together, and he's written songs on my record, records, and I wrote a song for him on one of his records. And um, the... the the origins of these relationships um, are pretty. They're they're both serendipitous and they're uh, almost as if they were destined. You know, I mean, yeah. I've just yeah. been so lucky to get to know all the musicians, pretty much all the musicians, famous and otherwise, right. who I've admired over the years, and I continue to. I mean, there's still bands or musicians that I that knock me out, and for whatever reason. Um, I either end up in their path or they end up in mine, and I, I don't really question it. I'm just glad I have <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Hey, I've got a question here, uh, Richard. You know, you were so ingrained into the studio scene, the you know, the business behind building, making the music behind the music, and you know, you actually have two sons that are both into music, also, right? That, that are singer songwriters. That's three. You have three. Yeah, all three. They're all. I mean, my youngest son Jesse, who just graduated from high school. He's an immensely talented drummer and guitar player and singer, 
but I always pointed to him as the smart one in that he didn't want to do it as a career. He he was hmm. really gifted musically, loves music, but you know, for years and years and years would say, yeah, that's not what I want to do for a living. I want to do something else. I just like music. Well, now he's dumb, too. Now he wants to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so now they're all, um, in one way, shape, or form, in various types of music. My oldest son, who's maybe the best singer I've ever recorded, mm-hmm. I mean, the best singer I've ever produced, and wow. my, his two younger brothers would attest to that. So not, you know, not picking a favor. It's just that Brandon is an incredible singer. He's just insanely great. Mm-hmm. And a really good songwriter and musician. Um, he's sort of taken a detour. He still writes and, and records stuff, but mainly he stumbled into DJing, and he's really good at that, and he loves wow. electronic music and dance yeah. music. And and he's... he's um, whereas his his songwriting and all that stuff is, is still embryonic and hasn't really taken him from point A to point B. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the DJing is propelling him. He's getting, you know, a lot of club managers and owners hearing some of his remixes and saying, Oh, you got to come and you know, DJ at my club. And so he's getting work. I mean, he's working. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I said, dude, ride it, you know, yeah, go exactly. for it. Um, and he loves it. So, uh, and my middle son, Lucas, um, is also really, really great singer songwriter, keyboard player, guitar player. Um, but he stumbled into some acting and um, got a part on a TV series last year that only lasted a year, but he was just, you know, he was a semi-regular on a TV, on a network TV series. And um, so he's sort of dabbling in acting as well as music. So they're all in the entertainment business as much as I prayed for a, you know, a scientist or a surgeon. I got positions. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Richard, your early career revolved a lot around being in the studio. Um, Prior to your support of your first solo record, how much experience did you have performing live? Almost none. I mean, really, really um, slim. I, I did a handful of club dates in L.A. that were pretty disastrous. You know, I mean, I mean, they were disastrous, and then I just, I was, I sucked. I just, I didn't have. <laughs> it's like anything else, you know. I don't think anybody walks on the stage the first time and is a good performer. You just, right. um, it's something you have to learn, like anything else. And um, I played in some rock clubs. Um, in in my attempts to get a record deal, I was glad I did it, even though I was mortified, you know, at how bad I was at it. I mean, it wasn't the singing or the playing; it was just being a performer and having any kind of stage vibe or being anything but completely petrified up there. Uh, even though I was only playing for you know two and a half people, um, <laughs> so no, I didn't have any performing experience prior to making my first record, and I knew that. Even recording my first album, I wanted to be known as a live performer. It was really important to me. So I thought, well, the smartest thing I could do is is hire a band of performers so that they, at least until I get my my, my sea legs, um, that the, the band will sort of pick up the slack and and camouflage how lame I am as a performer. So I hired Scott Paul Warren, who's uh, an amazing guitar player that toured a lot with Tina Turner up to that point and yeah. in his own bands. And then he's been with Rod Stewart for the last 15 years or so. Um, and Paul was sort of my, he was my, my right hand man. I mean, he and I, he taught me so much about stage presence and stage performing. And um, same with all the guys in, the, in my first band, they were all, they all came from, you know, big tours with other bands and artists, and 
Dave Cause was in my first band. As my, he was my first sax player, and he was an amazing showman. Um, but he'd been touring for years with Jeff Lorber as sort of the front guy. So oh, okay. I, I think I was really smart to do that because it, you know, a good maybe a couple months into that first 15-month world tour, um, I started to get it. I started to understand, you know, mm-hmm. what to do, and, mm-hmm. you know, and I got slowly got better. And, but I don't think I really became a real performer for 10 years. I think, I, I think there was a lot of posing and, mm-hmm. and not just being me and not just relaxing and, and not worrying about... The, the minute you just sort of let go and just be yourself, and then all of a sudden, um, unless you're incredibly boring as a person... <laughs> you're going to do much better just being yourself. And it just took me a lot longer than most to learn that. You know, uh, in, I, I read something about an early manager of yours gave you a pointer about performing live, and, and what he told you not to do was smile. Yeah. I, I mean, it really kind of wasn't feasible for you, was, <laughs> was it? <laughs> well, I mean, I tried to make it so, because I thought, well, he knows. You know, he's my manager, so I guess I'll listen to him. I, I still remember. I mean, and I, and I as, as lame and ludicrous as that sounds, in his mind... You know, we start. We we made the decision that we wanted to start my career at rock radio to perpetuate my career at rock radio because rock radio is where I was discovered. And you know, pop radio didn't want to know about my record or don't mean nothing. Or I mean, it was like this throwback to '70s rock. You know, I had Joe Walsh on it, and the Eagles hadn't made a record in seven years, and um, it was all hair metal and disco in 1987 on the radio. So here I come with this Southern California kind of eagle rock song. And, yeah. and it was rock radio that embraced it and broke it. And yeah. so we wanted to, I mean, I, it's what I considered myself as a rock artist. So I, you know, we did all the dances that you do to keep those relationships. And my manager felt like at the time, I already had a couple things going against me. Part of it was, you know, I had this, fluffy mullet and this baby face and, <laughs> um, you know, and studio chops and yeah. all the stuff that you're not supposed to have as a rock artist. So when I'd be up on stage, I was having a blast and, you know, that, 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 bunch of screaming girls and I thought yeah. I'd be smiling and he said, dude, <laughs> stage is so not rock. <laughs> and so I listened to him and for a while, you know, I would just do this sort of pouty posing and it's like dude, I, when I see pic- pictures or video from that, from that period I'm just so it's so lame <laughs> um, but luckily that I finally said this is ridiculous how am I supposed to not smile on stage <laughs> that's it's too stupid. funny oh. and one thing I noticed in your live shows when I started playing is that you, you play a good bit of guitar live as well as piano uh, what was your first instrument maybe that you call your native instrument well my native instrument is piano but um, but I I actually, I started, my, my parents put me into piano lessons, as you do, as you're supposed to do with your kids. I did the same thing with my kids. So that they sort of have an overall overall overview of, of the keyboard. And it's a great starter kit, you know, um, as you know, being a really terrific keyboard player yourself. So I, I started there. But, but then I, the music that I was really loving by the time I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, was more guitar bass, so I started taking um, acoustic guitar lessons, and I never took rock guitar lessons. I never really learned it. I just sort of learned it as I went, and that's why I'm a hack. And But I but I come up with really interesting guitar parts, mainly because I'm so not proficient as a guitar player, 
Um, it's kind of like Greg Fillingane said to me once, because I was complaining about, you know, again, how what a hack I am as a piano player, too. And he said, you know, don't knock that, because he said, I know too much. <laughs> I know so much that I could never write a song, like Right Here Waiting or something. That's amazing. That's just simple yeah. and straight ahead. He said, yeah. i got to complicate it like crazy, because I know too much. <sighs> and so I've embraced that, you know. I, I Believe me, <laughs> I know so little that it's worked for me. <laughs> but I found that, I mean, I still love sitting and playing the piano, but I found it. As a songwriter, I grab a guitar. That's my go-to thing, and it has been for the last dozen years or so or more. Um, that's really... I, I tend to write 80% of the time on guitar and not piano. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just sort of the type of music that I end up writing mm-hmm. lends itself more to guitar. You know, Richard, it's um, we're, as you mentioned that, you were such a hack. We're sort of like cracking up over here like, he thinks he's a hack. <laughs> um, it's funny you're saying that because a long, long time ago, I read an interview... It was with uh, an artist, Joe Jackson, who basically said almost just the same thing you're saying. He says, I know way too little piano, but it was so simple, his approach to it, that he made something great out of his limited knowledge. But it's not about how much you know the technical side. It's what you, I guess, you, what you do with it. So I just find that really ironic that I heard that a long, long time ago from, from Joe yeah, Jackson. Yeah, and it's also, you know, there are things that, ha- like, there the, it's your influences. Like, you know, I, my... Um, my piano hero, as much as I respected, and I still think Elton John, you know, in period, is one of the best pop rock piano players ever. He's a very underrated piano player. I think he's an amazing piano player. I mean, Billy Joel's a good piano player, but Elton John is a, is crazy great. His yeah. time, yeah. his choices. But my piano hero, when I was a kid, believe it or not, was Dave Grusin. Oh, me too. So when I started really... Uh, writing and when I would go to the piano, I would, even though I was writing totally different kind of music, I would try to integrate what I call, mm-hmm. you know, I would put expensive chords. Yeah. You know, you can't just play a B major chord. You're right. Um, so I would try to voice, you know, find different voicings. And, um, and so I found ways of playing that make people think I'm a much better piano player than I actually am. Um, and part of that is just voicings and the way you you know, phrase certain chords and uh, believe me, you can fool a lot of people with a, with a you know, yeah. the right nine and it's <laughs> like, you, you sound like Dave Grusin and it's really just a total hack job. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense, man. It makes sense. I, just, I definitely want to keep the chat alive here, Richard, but I wanted to stop for a second and I want to remind everyone that you have a new live album and a DVD that was released recently called A Night Out with Friends. Yeah. And we'll talk a little more about this shortly, but um, I want to take a quick break and check out a track from the album. And this is uh, one of your biggest hits, Should Have Known Better. This is from today's guest, Richard Marks.
Well, you know, you're obviously well known for your, your hit songs from the late 80s and 90s. In fact, no one has ever been able to achieve one particular feat that's, that's pretty well known about you. And that being, you know, your first seven single releases reached Billboard's top five. But, you know, your success as a songwriter goes beyond your own voice. And you've written several number one songs for not only yourself, but for, you know, a variety of established artists. Some of the, you know, some of the people you've written for, um, not necessarily as number ones, but, you know, that, that you've worked with is, is like a who's who, such as, you know, Josh Groban and Kenny Loggins, Michael Bolton, Kenny Rogers, uh, Keith Urban, Daughtry, Barbara Streisand, you know, the list goes on. I just want to know, you know, just tell me a little bit about your creative process. You know, are, when it comes to writing, are you, are you kind of a ritualistic writer or do you have certain routines, or are you constantly, you know, reinventing your own writing process? I wouldn't say I ever reinvent the writing process because my writing process when I write by myself is is the same as it's always been. And I can't even necessarily explain it uh-huh. because um, I don't know, I don't really know anybody, uh, and I'm sure there are people, but I just don't know of anybody that writes in the way that I do, which is that... Um, if I'm writing for myself, or if it's just a song that just sort of comes out, it's almost never a case of me going into a room to intentionally write a song. The only time that happens is if I'm co-writing with somebody. Um, I've found that for the last 30 years or so, I write something every day. And okay. it's not intentionally. It's mm-hmm. just that it happens. There's hardly a day that goes by when, and maybe it's just I'm running to get a coffee somewhere, or I'm in the shower, or I'm watching a TV show, and I hear a piece of cue music that makes me go, oh, I wish that melody had done this, and all of a sudden I've written written a new melody. So somewhere along the way, a piece of music is written, or a a line of lyric, or sometimes a whole song. But it's pretty much every day, and it's it's not an... concerted effort. Yeah. It's just something that happens. It's like flossing or breathing. <laughs> it's just sort of something that happens. And yeah. And I the only um intentional writing is co writing because you know, exactly. if Keith and Urban and I are gonna write together we have to set up a day and a time and a place. Mm-hmm. And I uh, it's actually it, 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 right then and there it's a totally different it's it's perspiration and not inspiration usually. I mean yeah. inspiration will will show up sometimes if you're lucky in those situations, but mm-hmm. um, it's a totally different experience. It's let's try to write a song. I don't ever try to write a song otherwise, you know, it just right. may happen. Okay. Uh, no, my, my process is, is really different and it all depends on who I'm writing with. And um, my, all of my collaborative experiences are, they're so different. Some of them are similar, but some of them are so different. You know, I, and I'm, I think I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty good at adapting to whoever I'm writing with. If they, if they are um, lyrical juggernauts, I stay out of the way and I just try to help them say exactly what they want to say. And mm-hmm. if they're really good melody people, same thing, you know, it's just sort of being a support system. I, 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 that doesn't happen to me most of the, most of the time. 
I'm not somebody that likes to sit in a room with somebody with dead space, with silence. You know, I'm always going to be proactive. I'm always going to be trying to keep it going and saying, oh, okay, you don't like that? How about this? Oh, really? Okay. How about this? Yeah. Just keep it moving forward because... If you're sitting in a room and there's a lot of silence, you just means you shouldn't be in the room. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> it shouldn't be that hard, you know. I mean, some uh, writing a, a, an exceptional song sometimes is a really tough process, and mm-hmm. you got to work through it. I'm not saying that it should, it should always be easy, but there should always be some forward motion going on. Right. Um, so, w- which which is why I've narrowed down, you know, over the many years, there are a handful of people that I really love to write with because I know every time that something good's going to come out of it. And then there are a lot of people, I don't know. I mean, I'm, it's not that I won't do it, but mm-hmm. I don't know going in, so maybe I'm a little less excited about that particular writing appointment. Yeah. Um, but there are people, Matt Scannell is at the top of the list. I know <laughs> he and I speak the same language. I know we're always going to come up with something that we're both excited about. Right. And we're going to push each other. And um, I have infinite respect for his musicianship and songwriting and, um, Trey Bruce is a songwriter in Nashville. Same thing. I never walk into a room with Trey Bruce and come out with anything less than something I'm excited about. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Richard, uh, one of my favorite co-writes goes back to the 80s, and we've talked about this, uh, The Best of Me with David Foster. And uh, I was just wondering what the first song you had that really launched your career as a writer before becoming an artist. Well, before I say that, you know, it's really important. Um, the Best of Me which is a song I'm really, really proud to be a part of. I was only barely 19, I think, when I wrote that. Um, that's a Jeremy Lovick song, more than, way more than it's a David Foster song. I don't even remember exactly what David contributed to it, and I'm not knocking David for that, but it's like I don't remember David's contribution to that song. But Jeremy Lovick, 80% of that song is Jeremy Lovick. And I'm, I, I'd like to think I'm the other 20%, or at least the other 18%. Um, so even though Jeremy Lovick is not a name that the public knows, that song, what is amazing about that song is Jeremy Lovick. Hmm. Um, what was the other part of your question? Yeah, what was your, <laughs> the big song you wrote for someone other than yourself that kind of launched that part of your career? Well, my songwriting career was sort of launched, was not sort of, was launched completely as a result of my relationship with Lionel Richie yeah. in that after I had sung on his first album, I hadn't done anything else. And he recommended me as a background singer to Kenny Rogers because, you know, they have a great history together and they were still working together sometimes. And and Kenny had just sort of casually said to Lionel, you know, I, I need some new blood. I need some new people to work with. And Lionel said, I've been working with this kid from Chicago and he's got a good range and he's fast and he comes up with parts and he's, you know, he's really easy to work with. You should try him out. So Kenny hired me for two days on a record he was making and... So I did my first session, and I overheard Kenny say to his producer that they were still short a song, that they still he was still looking for this one kind of song, and he sort of described it to the producer, and I just happened to overhear it. So I knew I had a session the next day with him, and so I went home to my apartment, and I wrote a song like he was describing. Now, this is a really good way to get fired, by the way. <laughs> um, just saying. But I went for broke. I just thought, i got to go for it. And so I came in, and we started this, the next day's session, and I remember going up to Kenny, and I was, my whole body was shaking, because I thought, this is so lame that I'm doing this. this. The background singer is going, hey, I've got a song. 
Um, but I just said, look, I overheard you yesterday. I'm a songwriter, and I wrote something last night. And Kenny Rogers, again, kind of like Lionel, I mean, how, how what it says about their security with themselves and their, their um, just, they were menches, you know. I mean, they're just such good guys. Kenny Rogers, instead of calling security to escort me out of the building, said, let me hear it. So we went to the piano, and I sat down, and I played him this song called Crazy. Yeah. And he said, I love it. He said, I, I, I'd like to look at maybe this section and do this. And so he made a couple of changes, and he became a co-writer, which I didn't care. I was like, hey, I'm a co-writer with Kenny Rogers. That's Jeez, awesome. right, exactly. <laughs> and 100% of nothing is nothing. So, um, yeah. so he cut that song, and then he listened to some of my other stuff, and I ended up having three songs on that. It was called What About Me, which was one of the songs that, that we wrote. I wrote it with David Foster and Kenny, and David produced it. And um, that was the first single. And then Crazy was a number one country song. And uh, yeah. so that's sort of, that was my, those were my first cuts. Um, and they were both hits. And, I mean, there was another song on the album that was an album track, but two of the three songs uh, were, were hits. And all of a sudden, I, you know, I could pay my rent and, my life changed. Well, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you about another uh, artist that's kind of a crossover country pop artist, and that's Keith Urban. And it's it's a collaboration that, you know, I find interesting as, you know, like I said, he's a country pop crossover artist. And in many ways, in, I think today's country is like the closest thing to 80s pop that's, you know, kind of left in the music industry. Couldn't and agree more. You just got to add steel guitar or a ganjo, you know. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when you first sit down to collaborate with Keith, for example, how do you approach the songwriting process with him? I mean, how do you get inside of his head and figure out how to, li- how to deliver what's best for Keith or what he might be looking for from you? Um, I'm still learning that with him because... Um, I'm stubborn in that my my approach, especially the lyrics, is is so. Um, I'm always trying really hard to say it unlike you've heard it before. Say the exact same stuff that you've heard, but say it differently. Yeah. With Keith, that is so not his approach, and and he, that that has been the only. Here's what happens every time I write with Keith. We write a piece of music effortlessly. It just falls out of us and we finish each other's musical sentences and we've got a really cool piece of music really quickly. And then we look at each other and we go, crap, now we have to write words. <laughs> because the process for us together is a lot of give and take and a lot of dead space and a lot of silence um, as we're both sitting there because I want to take it to this Uber poetic place, and Keith, his success is based upon just sort of saying it. Just, and I'm not saying that in a, in a simplistic way because the guy has had bazillion hits, yeah, and yeah. His, his his lyrics resonate with his fans yeah. very deeply. But they're very simple, and he looks at me, somebody like me, as wasting a lot of syllables. Like he'll. I'll be going off on this, you know, verse, and he'll go, dude, why can't we just say, I walked down the street? <laughs> why does it have to be, I hovered, you know, uh, woefully, but he just wants to say it. Yeah. And so then the process becomes, how can we say it really simply, but that it sort of sings really great, and um, so the, the lyrical 
collaboration between us is effort. It's, it takes work. We, I don't think we've ever just sort of nailed a lyric really quickly. And in, most, in, the, hit, in the case of our hits, um, Long Hot Summer and Better Life, the music was written you know, usually in under an, half an hour, and the lyrics took two or three different writing sessions in different towns. Uh-huh. And the lyric wouldn't, certainly wouldn't, if you read the lyric, you'd go, really? <laughs> this took you guys three different days in three <laughs> different towns? Um, but it just, that's the process with, yeah. with, with me and him. And sometimes we have to get in the car with the work tape and drive around and sing syllables. And um, But that's just sort of the way it works. Yeah. And the minute the music starts, Keith wants to integrate either the guitar motif or... Um, a banjo line or something that is going to be um, an integral part of the of the, the musical landscape of that song. I mean, he always comes up with something. Maybe in some cases I'll say, hey, what if there's a guitar line that kind of does this, and then he'll take it and make it cool and, um, and make it his. So you know, I love, love, love writing music with Keith because he's so, so talented and so proficient and mm-hmm. I mean, he's one of the best guitar players I've ever known, and yeah. tasteful. You know, he he can get up there and go crazy, and you know, play a bazillion riffs mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. lightning fingers. He does, but he doesn't because he doesn't have to. Yeah, you know, he's really um, economical in his solos, and um, he loves solos that you can sing, that you can you know that are melodies that you, that you can remember. So we we love a lot of the same music. So um, so that's been a pretty interesting relationship because on one half of it it's really effortless and easy and the other half of it it's painful yeah so um but we still try and get in there and slug it out you know i've been encouraging him to uh to maybe you know every once in a while get together and write not for him but just maybe write a song for someone else because i really love writing with him so um maybe rather than always be catering the lyric to what he wants to say about his life, maybe get in there just as two songwriters and write a song for, you know, any number of other artists. So uh, yeah. hopefully that will happen. Eddie and I had uh, uh, Chris Rodriguez uh, on our show a while back, and Chris is a good friend of the show, and, and um, he was, of course, in, in uh, Keith's band um, yep. for a while. And uh, when they came through town here, uh, he invited us out to the show, and and uh, Eddie and I, you know, we had never seen Keith perform, and you, you mentioned a second ago about how he connects with fans, and, you know, he, uh, I mean, I don't listen to his music, but, man, I was blown away by that concert. I mean, he just, yeah, I mean. we were talking in the beginning about my greenness and my lack of stage presence and learning how to be a performer, and Keith, you know, I'm sure his first, you know, time at that, you know, like anybody else, was awkward and everything, but I bet he can't do it way quicker than most people, because... I saw him the day I wrote the first time I wrote with him, which was right after his first album came out. And he wasn't a star yet; he'd had like a minor sort of hit. But I heard about him because he, the musicians in Nashville, knew about him. And plus, when he was with that band, The Ranch, there was a he had a reputation of being a really great musician. And so, uh, some publisher hooked us up together, and he was playing in town the, the next night. So he said, "Oh, you should come to the gig." So my wife and I went to see him play, and that's the first thing. And he was playing a lot of cover songs, so he didn't have hardly any material to play, you know. But he was um, 
he was a he was almost like a seasoned performer at that point, and this is really early in his career. He just sort of knew how to be up there. He loved being on stage. He knew how to put a show together. Um, so it's no wonder that as the success grew and the money and the budgets for the touring grew, that you go see a Keith, a Keith Urban show, you're really going to get your money's worth. I mean, he's one of the best performers oh, on the absolutely. road. Absolutely, yeah. Hey, Richard, I want to go back to 2004. And I want to play a track from your album, My Own Best Enemy. And this one's called Falling. And I'm playing this one because I've always loved this track, especially the orchestration throughout. I mean, it was, it was kind of a different approach for you, and I wanted to share that with our audience. So sure. here's Falling from today's guest, Richard Marks.
Hey, Richard, we all remember pretty much um, quite clearly in 04 when you um, won a Grammy uh, for co-writing along with Luther Vandross, the, the, the song of the year. It was a dance with my father. And, um, you know, your collaboration with him, um, you know, on, on stage that evening, he was supposed to perform, and but he couldn't because he was ill. Um, do you recall anything from that evening when you performed? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a really amazing. Yeah. It was a really bittersweet and amazing experience. Um, I had written with him a couple songs that he'd recorded over the years. Um, I wrote a, the single from his Christmas album, mm-hmm. and we wrote a song um, from another album. And he'd sung background vocals on a bunch of my stuff. Really? And we'd performed together. Yeah, he came and sang. Starting on my third album, he sang on all my albums after the from the third album on, pretty much. Yeah. Um, he was just, we became dear friends, and um, he was one of the only performers that I was really friends with. I mean, I, there, I know a ton of them and like them, but I don't really hang out with other performers. It's just a couple guys, and yeah. and he was my friend. I mean, we were really close friends and spent a lot of social time together. And and so he called me up one day. Um, you know, the, the backstory on this is a, is a little bit long, but I'll tell you, which is, my dad, uh, who I was in, you know, I've talked about his talent, but I mean, he was like my best friend. We were just, we had an extraordinary relationship, father-son relationship. And my dad was killed in a, as a result of a car accident in 1997. And, right. um, and Luther was one of the only people, if not the only person around that time, who just sort of knew how to talk to me and how to help me. And he would, he knew just when to call and we would sometimes be on the phone for two and three hours. And he really helped me through that really dark time, which lasted, it just took me for, I mean, I'm still, I'll never get over that loss. Yeah. Um, but he, Luther was incredibly helpful to me. So, you know, four or five years later, uh, he calls me and says, I got an idea for a song called Dance With My Father, and it's about my father, meaning his father. Mm-hmm. See, Luther, his dad died when Luther was like 12 or something. 
So he has only very vague memories of his dad. But the most powerful memory he had of his dad was his dad would come be in the kitchen of their apartment in New York and he would dance with his wife and the kids and just dance around the kitchen. And it was really sweet, you know, visual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he said, could you write a piece of music um, and just send it to me and then I'll uh, see, see what I can come up with. But that's the title just to give you, a, a, you know, an idea. So I wrote this piece of music and I sent it to him just within a couple of days he calls me back. He says, okay, I changed this part of the melody, and, and I wrote this lyric, and it killed me. I mean, it was Dance With My Father. Wow. So that's it. That's the song. He goes in, he records it, and 10 days after he recorded the song, he has this massive stroke. And so by the time the Grammys came and won Song of the Year, I mean, look, I love that song, but Luther knew from the time we wrote it. He actually said to me, this is my piano man. This is the defining song of my career. Mm-hmm. This is the song that I'm going to go, I'm going to always be most proud of. So, wow. of course, I was <laughs> so incredibly proud to be a part of it. Absolutely. Um, so then when the stroke happened, and then the song started to take on a different meaning and a different um, gravitas, you know, yeah. about it, I, didn't, I certainly didn't think we were going to win Song of the Year because there were some great songs up that year. That, sure. There was an Avril Lavigne song that I really loved. and mm-hmm. um, Anyway, so we won Song of the Year. I, I was thrilled, but I couldn't celebrate it because he wasn't there. Yeah. And he was still in the hospital. He, there was a video thing from him that night. But, um, you know, that was supposed to be our night to go and party and yeah. just be best, fr- you know, be best friends who wrote the Song of the Year. I mean, it wasn't sure, even just exactly. like two co-writers who were out celebrating. It's like, two really close friends who won Song of the Year, yep. and I was by myself. So it was really, uh, I couldn't really celebrate it. And then, I, you know, it was Celine Dion sang it, um, and I played piano for her, and there was like, there were technical glitches. It was hilarious. They'd had, you know, right before us, they'd had Earth, Wind, and Fire and Outcast. They had like <laughs> 70 people on stage without, <laughs> without a glitch. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then it's just a piano vocal, and the sound went out. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> really? Oh, no. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but we got through it and, and Celine did an amazing job. And, um, so yeah, I remember every nuance of that night, but what I remember most was I couldn't really celebrate. And, um, and it, it you know, I, it's, it's the reason that I don't sing that song. I tried a couple of times. I sang it a couple of times live and it just was too painful. Hmm. It's, you know, I miss that guy. I mean, we all miss his voice cause he was arguably the greatest singer we've ever had. Mm-hmm. But I just miss him. I mean, if anybody that knew him, he was the funniest guy and just the most soulful, sweet, uh, amazing friend. So to me, when I, I'm proud, I'm so proud of my work with him. Yeah. But when I sit down, when I've tried a couple times to sit down and play that on the piano and sing it, it just makes me sad. So I, I don't yeah. do it. Well, speaking of funny guys, uh, the name Steve Lukather comes to mind, and <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I'm you know, obviously changing topics, but um, you know, you mentioned Luke a little while ago, and it brought Toto to mind. And you know, you've been involved with some of the recordings in the past, and I, I know Luke is a good friend, and um, and he's played on some of your stuff as well. So, but another Toto connection was you know was Jeff Percaro, and you know, this August fifth coming up here will mark the twentieth anniversary of his of his tragic death and and in fact one of his very last sessions uh, was with you for one of your songs i think it was one man is that correct yeah, yeah. if you don't mind just um give us give us your thoughts about working with jeff and, and what he meant to you 
Well, you know, we were talking about this, the studio musicians and the session guys that I worshipped, and Jeff was really high on that list. Yeah. So when I when I got to know Lucather, then I knew, then I got to know the other Toto guys, and um, and there were a couple times on the first on the first couple albums that I really wanted Jeff to play, and we just I just couldn't get him. I mean, he was just too busy. Either Toto, Toto was touring, or he when he was off the road. Um, he was he was in the studio every day. I mean, he was the most sought after session drummer. Um, but then on the third album, um, some time opened up, and he and I had gotten to know each other a little bit. So he said, "Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna blow off some other stuff because I really want to work with you." And so I got to work with Jeff on you know a couple of my albums, and um, and just you know he was one of those guys that, especially for a drummer. Not to denigrate other drummers, but he's one of the rare drummers that really walks in there. And once he hears the song, his overview in in terms of serving the song is different. I mean, most drummers are just worried about the drum part. Jeff always played the song. He always played for the song. It wasn't about him yeah. or how clever he could be. Or, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's a really rare quality in a drummer. And as versatile as they ever came was Jeff Ricardo. I mean, if you look at his resume, it's, it's as schizophrenic as mine is as a songwriter, you know, in a good way. (laughs) Um, So he, I don't, I'd never met anybody that worked with him that wasn't, didn't marvel at his musicianship. He's just, and he was a great guy. Um, Loved to be, to be in that room with you. Loved to be making records with people. It didn't matter what it was. Mm-hmm. He just loved and was grateful to be, you know, in that world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when we lost him, we lost a really, really good one and a really good guy. Um, and I'm just, you know, he's another one on the, that list. I'm so grateful that I got to work with him. And, mm-hmm. um, when we mixed that song, the song that he played on, uh, it came out actually after he died. And um, when we were mixing it, it was haunting because you you know we were mixing it and i was hearing him count it off and yeah um his performance is incredible but it was it was hearing his voice and joking in between in between takes and stuff so yeah he's another one greatly missed well i want to i want to pause for a quick break and i want to check out this this really it's actually a very inspirational track and um even more so (laughs) just knowing the story about jeff Bercaro uh playing drums on it yeah and it being one of his, of course, one of his last sessions. This is one man from the album Paid Vacation from today's guest, Richard Marks.
Richard, jumping ahead to uh, recently, you released a new album and DVD, A Night Out with Friends, uh, from the PBS Front Row Center. It includes, I guess, 10 live tracks and a couple new studio tracks. Who were some of the folks that uh, joined you on that project? Uh, well, Matt Scannell played in the band. The, the show was filmed last year, and um, it's sort of a, a, a combination of all the different ways that I tour. So it opens with just me, solo acoustic, and then it's me with a string quartet, and um, and then it's full band for the last hour and change. And uh, Matt Scannell came and not only played in the band, um, but we did an acoustic duo song together of a Vertical Horizon song called You're a God. And because Matt and I have done a bunch of shows like that as an acoustic duo. And uh, 
Matthew Jackman, who I've been friends with for about, I don't know, eight years or so. Um, and he's just a, a amazing... I mean, he, if I didn't love him so much, I'd hate his guts because he's so <laughs> talented in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, but he came and we did... Um, he sang the Josh Groban song that I wrote and produced called To Where You Are. Okay. And then we did a duet of The Letter. I, I wrote an arrangement of it that sounds like, you know, an ACDC cover it does. of The Letter. It's, it's a rockin' version. Yeah, it's really, <laughs> it was really fun, and it, it's such a fun song to play and sing. Yeah. And, um, and it's also it's a good duet song for, a, for two guys, because sometimes it's hard. You know, lyrically, it's, it's tough to find songs that really work for two guys to sing, but um, that one worked great, and that was a blast. And uh, J.C. Chazé from NSYNC came out and did This I Promise You, which is the hit I wrote and produced for them years ago for NSYNC. And, uh, and then I brought in this girl named Sarah Nimitz, who's um, based in L.A. She just turned 20, I think. And my, my son, one of my sons was just sort of surfing YouTube and stumbled upon some videos of hers. And he said, Dad, you got to hear this girl. She's amazing. And she's this amazing singer-songwriter. Um, that I got to know and I brought her out because I wanted people to hear her sing. And so she did a, a duet with me of uh, Keep Coming Back, which is which is actually the first song that Luther Vandross sang background vocals on for me. Hmm. And we did that as a duet, um, acoustic, and the audience just went mental over her. So it was a really good you know, group of people and um, audience was incredible. I was so glad we filmed that particular show. You know, sometimes you film a show or you record a show in the midst of a tour and you go, damn it! Why didn't? Why couldn't we have recorded last Thursday night? It was so much better last Thursday night. <laughs> yeah. um, but this show, there was something really magical, and so I'm glad we we filmed this one. And uh, yeah, the the PBS special is an edited version. It's like a 56 minute version of it, but the show's two and a half hours, so it's the whole show on the DVD. Oh, okay. Oh, and neat. then there's uh, ten songs live from the show and a couple of new studio tracks. Um, I'm not even sure why we put extra tr- studio tracks. I think somebody said, hey, there's room. You want to put a couple of new songs on? <laughs> always yes. The answer is always yes. <laughs> well, very cool. Hey, we're about to wrap up, but you know what we did today is we, uh, before the interview, we posted uh, a message up on Facebook, on our Facebook page, and it just invited our listeners to, uh, as we basically said, if you had one question you wanted to ask Richard, what would it be? And I, we got a ton of responses, but I got a few select questions here that, if you don't mind, can I pass sure. those along to you? We, uh, the first one is Kathy Baker from Fishers, Indiana, and she says, of all the artists you've written for, West, which one best captures the soul of the song you wrote? Oh, that's a that's a pretty sneaky way of getting an answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, who would you like to working with the best? That's right. That's right. That. That's sneaky, Kathy. <laughs> sneaky, um, Kathy. <laughs> um, I gotta say, Luther. I mean, his sense of artistry uh, combined with the fact that I mean, "Dance with My Father" is the is the quintessential example of it, and it's because I mean, he that that song. Although I helped drive it musically, that song is all about his experience, and it was his... I'm just so glad that I got to be the teammate on it, but he didn't really need me. I'm glad he brought me in, but he didn't need me. He could have done that by himself. So I think that 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 particular song and that particular record is the answer to her question. I don't don't think there's ever been an example of something that has been more um, inhabited by an artist. I mean... If I got to pick a runner-up, actually, it would be um, Kenny Loggins, and I wrote a song called "The One That Got Away." Oh, that's mm-hmm. a great song. That's beautiful. That's a great that, song. Uh, it's, 
it's that would go in my time capsule. You know, it's a song that people don't know. It's never a hit song. It's not. It's I don't think it would ever and had a chance to be a hit song. It's not that kind of thing. I heard him. I heard him perform that. Actually, debut that at a concert that I saw um, yeah. of his. You know, several years ago, and before he put that on his album, and he did it live. And uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful tune. It's such an emotionally um, draining and powerful lyric for him. And I'm mm-hmm. again so proud that he entrusted me with that. You know, being doing that with him, and mm-hmm. um, I'm so proud of being a part of that song. And and Kenny. Again, it's like he inhabits that song completely and fully. So I guess Absolutely. those would be my top two. Mm-hmm. Richard, I have another question here. This is from Craig Correno from Tampa. And he asks, um, do you have any plans of working with Bill Champlin again in the future? Uh, no plans, but I, I haven't seen Bill in a long time. But I uh-huh. love working with him. Yeah. Especially I love doing background vocals with him. He's the most fun background vocal singer in the world. <laughs> He's and a he comes up, He'll come up with a million parts. And he's so proficient. He's such a great. Um, he, he, his he's uncanny in in the parts he comes up with that are just sort of like, where did you come up with exactly that? right? <laughs> um, he's also an incredible. He's a really good guitar player. A lot of people don't know, yeah, but he he's also maybe you know one of the best B three players in the world. Yep. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a he's a savant, Bill Champlin. He's a crazy talented guy. So I haven't worked with him in a long time. I love him. I think he's awesome as a guy too i love hanging out with him so it's a good reminder actually it makes me go i should email bill and go hey when are we gonna work together <laughs> you know we've had him on the show twice and both times i, I can't remember laughing so oh hard and he cracks yeah. us up <laughs> you crazy you, you I gotta listen to that show because it'll it's just so phenomenally funny and yeah. we've got a listener from the netherlands his name is i hope i pronounced this right it's hank pool mm-hmm. at least i think that's it there's nothing he can do about it if you don't <laughs> <That's right. laughs> sorry hank <laughs> well this is a this is a really open-ended question i don't oh, know how man. you're going to answer this, this but and i actually asked him if he if this is what he meant to ask you but he said what is the greatest song ever written i guess in your mind what is the greatest song ever written i don't think he means your tunes just in general right. what do you think is the greatest Right, like I picked one of mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you that, could. That's, you know, I don't. Is, is there anybody that can really answer that question? I know. Well, I know. Okay. Hank, thanks a lot, Hank. First of all, there's no. It's almost like saying that it's not subjective. You know, it's like right. exactly. Like there is no. There's no. Like ask Siri. You know, yes. <laughs> um, I just don't know um, how anybody ever answers those questions because it's so. I couldn't even pick. I couldn't pick twenty. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's a exactly. <laughs> I think we need to ask Hank that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's an intriguing question. It's from Chris Horvath, and if it's who I think it is, I think he's from L.A. We may have gone to school together, but he says, yeah. "If you could relive your whole career, what if anything would you change, and why?" That's a good question. Um, the one thing that comes to mind is. Um, you know, when I finished the tour for the second album, which is called Repeat Offender, and that that was sort of that's the biggest selling album, and it just went crazy around the world, and it was that's when things were really firing on all cylinders. Writer Waiting was on that record, and we did a, another 15 month world tour, and it just was like that was when it was all completely um, at a peak. And the, instead of just instead of being smart enough at 25 to go, wow, everything's working. It's all great. Um, all I remember thinking was all the 
press saying that I wasn't really a rock and roll singer. And, <laughs> you know, part of that was because the label smelled more money from the ballads, so they, I didn't have control over what they put out as singles. I had no control over that. Mm-hmm. So as much as we would beg them to vary the singles and not just keep putting out ballads, they put out a lot of ballads. Um, so I started to get this tag of saying, oh, he's a ballad singer, he's not a rock singer. And so when some, it's sort of like, I'm just obstinate that way. It's like if somebody says, yeah, I can't do something, of course I'm going to do it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> so exactly. I decided on the third album, I was going to go so far over to, over the top to prove that to these people that I would never meet, nor should I have cared at all about. So from the writing through the production, I made the most concentrated rock album I possibly could. Now, there were still songs on there like Hazard and Take This Hard and um, yeah. Keep Coming Back that didn't that weren't that, but 80% of the record was the heaviest record I ever made. There's a song with Tommy Lee called Streets of Pain that I, my, my throat still hurts from singing that song. <laughs> um, and I, I completely accomplished the mission that I set out to do. But I look back and that record as a whole doesn't hold up for me. And I can hear that sort of, um, I can hear me trying too hard. Mm. And I think that my core, my, my fans, at the, especially at that time where I had the most fans, I think a lot of them were left going, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. So I think that would be the one thing if I could talk to the 25-year-old me, I'd go, dude, what do you, just make the record you want to make. Don't worry about it. Just don't be so consumed with, is it rock enough? Don't, you know, next thing you're going to stop smiling on stage again. Um, so that was, that's the only thing. That's really the only thing. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've never written a song and recorded a song that I'm embarrassed by, luckily, and I've never done anything in my career that I'm ashamed of or, you know, I've just been so blessed. I've been so blessed to collaborate with amazing people and have had a lot of freedom to do what I wanted to do. That was a great case of, you know, be careful with your freedom because I had the freedom to do whatever kind of record I wanted to do. And maybe it would have been better if somebody pulled me aside and said, don't you think you're trying too hard? You know, but at that point, when your career is that big, it's really hard to find people that will pull you aside and tell you the truth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, that's the only thing I would point to, maybe. Okay. Um, here's one more. Uh, Dale Rohrbach from Detroit. He asks, is there something specific uh, that you've learned about yourself or your music or the music industry in the past few decades that have surprised you? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. How about this question? Did this surprise you? <laughs> how about everything? Right, <laughs> exactly. Nothing, nothing was as predicted. Nothing is ever as you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no one thing. It's just like it's all of it. I mean, none of it. For, right? Look, it, it covers everything from when you're young and you think, if I have hit records, if I have a big hit record, that will make me feel a certain way about myself. Well, and then it happens, and you go, how come I don't feel that way? Well, it's a, it's a complete fallacy, you know? From that to um, being able to understand why certain songs are hits and why certain songs aren't, and why this guy that has been an A&R guy in four different labels and never signed a successful act keeps getting hired. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's yeah. like a, a, a million questions that you go, yeah. I just don't understand this. Yeah. So... If you want to be in an industry where things make sense, this is not the industry you want to be in. <laughs> Isn't that true? makes me wonder if there is an industry that makes sense. 
It probably <laughs> is. It's definitely not this. <laughs> hey, we've got two more quick ones. Uh, Pasquale Iliano from Rhode Island. Uh, he asks, who is the musician that inspired you the most growing up? My dad. Yeah, that's what I thought you'd answer. Hands down. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't just that he was amazing. I mean, he was the best, single greatest piano player I've ever heard. Uh-huh. Um, and, that, you know, all nepotism aside, um, yep. I've had a lot of amazing uh, you know, jazz guys that I've met over the years that say, your dad was the best, you know. Um, But it was his work ethic and his unwillingness to be a musical snob. Mm -hmm. That was the best thing about Mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. That he said, there's great stuff everywhere. Right. Every genre has something great. And, um, you know, especially coming from a guy that was a jazz guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's unheard of. He (laughs) he would find great stuff everywhere and was open to everything and, um, so he was the single, not only my, you know, hero musician, but just my hero as a guy. Yeah. And then our final question is from uh, Eveline Strandell from Sweden, and she just wants to know when you're coming to Europe. I know. Are you going to be touring over there anytime soon? Um, yeah. I mean, we've been talking about it because I did. I came back. Uh, I didn't even get to Sweden, but um, in the last couple of years, I've gone back to Europe quite a bit and played. You know, in places that I used to play all the time, and we played Royal Albert Hall last year, which was amazing. It was wow. a really special night, and um, throughout Germany, which has been great. Um, played in Russia for the first time, and Bulgaria for the first time, and mm-hmm. Finland for the first time. Um, but it, you know, as you guys know, it's not up to me. If, you know, right. if a promoter comes to us and says, "Here's, we'd like to bring you over to do these," and it makes sense, then we come. But Absolutely, I hope so because I really want to come back. Uh, I'd like to come back before the end of the year, but it'll probably realistically be the beginning of 2013. That's good. Hey, thanks for all the time. I appreciate it. And I, I know we went longer than you. Um, oh, that's okay. It was fun. And, and Scott, thanks a lot, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Sure. No problem. All right, guys. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Special thanks to Richard Marks for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Wright, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside MusicCast. Inside MusicCast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast. Music.